quickly, right? No, that is not how it works. Last week was actually a little simpler. Uh, but we're going to try to do this in 35 minutes. We'll get out at noon. But as is our custom, I think it's important for us to confess the Heidelberg Catechism together uh, before we dive in and try to uh, study it in more detail. So question 26. What do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence, is my God and Father for the sake of Christ his Son. I trust God so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul and will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends upon me in this veil of tears. He is able to do this because he is almighty God. He desires to do this because he is a faithful father. This morning we begin to look at what, it, what we mean when we confess that God is father and that he is my father. The question is very straightforward. What do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? The answer to that question will be rich and it is worthy of you spending a lot of time meditating upon. Right? You do not have to exhaust this in the next 35 minutes to meditate upon the fact that the creator of all the universe has become your loving father in Jesus Christ is something you can think about and take blessings from every day of your life. So I want to start with a few questions for you. What comes to mind when we talk about fatherhood? Right. Now, in one sense, I'm asking that question backwards. Um, it is true that all fatherhood on earth is actually a pale imitation of God's fatherhood from heaven. God is the paradigm, we are the distorted mirrors of that paradigm. Nevertheless, the way we actually come to experience fatherhood for most of us is we come to experience it first with human fathers before we come to think of our God in heaven being our father as well. So I want to ask you just that concept of fatherhood. What sort of things do you think of when you hear that someone is a father? Anyone at all? Anything at all? Love. Fathers love. Love their children. Sarah. Protection. So a father wants to protect his family. What else? Strength. Strength. Yeah. Restraint. Oh, restraint. Oh, restraining you. Yeah. So the, a father disciplines those whom he loves. So good, healthy discipline, of course, is for the benefit of the child. And that, that's the type of discipline that our Father in Heaven does. He gives us discipline for our good. What else? Yeah, Ray. Provider. That's very important. Um, so we, we've kind of lost this a bit in our culture, and that, that's fine in one sense, but we have to remember that in the ancient Near East and in the days of the New Testament, it was very much expected that the father in the family was the protector and the provider of the family in terms of earning incomes. Many of our families... Husbands and wives are both working, and it would not be unusual for the wife to be making more money than the husband, or for it to be that both of them are making about the same amount of money. But in terms of the 
tradition that we're looking at was we look at the Bible, it was expected that Father is the provider, and as we see in the Bible, God our Father is our provider. We're not going to talk too much about this today, because next time we get together and we look at Lord's Day 10, we are going to look at God's providence together. Whenever you hear providence, God's governing of all things, you ought to think provider. God is governing all things for his own glory, but also for the good of his people. We'll say a bit about that today. What else do you think of when you think of fatherhood or a father? Teacher. Teacher. Fathers raise their children. They, they instruct them in the ways that they ought to go. At least a good, healthy parent does. God commands parents, actually both husbands and wives, to do this with their children, to teach their children in the way that they should go, to speak of God's redeeming acts. Right? You don't just go off by yourself in private and go, I have these warm thoughts because of the exodus. God has delivered us. Rather, you're called to share that joy with your children and say, God is such a good God. Let me tell you the story about the time when our forefathers were in Egypt and God delivered us with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm because he loves us and he wanted us to worship him in a spirit and truth. Right? What else? Worthy of trust and respect. So a good father is worthy of trust and respect. And of course, even if you have bad earthly parents, we are called to respect them. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. Respect your father and mother. Why do you respect your father and mother regardless of whether or not they are good? Because the Bible says so. That is a fantastic answer. So you honor your father in heaven because he's God. He is worthy. But actually you honor your earthly parents also because God is worthy. But you do it unto the Lord. You do it for the sake of Jesus Christ not because they are intrinsically meritorious. Other thoughts about fatherhood. There's one that I, I'm hoping someone will come up with. Ray. Role model. That, yes, that's true. So we heard in this morning's sermon, we're to imitate our father's character, so God is the perfect role model. But those of you who are earthly father, fathers, you realize your children are going to imitate you. Notice I didn't say might imitate you. They are going to imitate you. But they might imitate you by going into the den, making a second cup of coffee, and uh, reading the newspaper while they listen to music, but hopefully they're going to imitate your better character traits as well. Yes, Jen? Authority. Authority is an important aspect. It's also one that's diminished somewhat in our culture, but in both the Old Testament and the days of Christ at the time of the Roman Empire, fathers were given a great deal of authority in the families. I just want to give you one more, because I do want to... Go ahead. Yes. Yeah. That's right. So it's very important that when we think about God, our creator, as our father, that we're seeing him as our provider. And you mentioned a bunch of things he provides for everybody in terms of creation. So God is, in one sense, everyone's provider, 
but he's in a particular way for his children a provider and caring for all our needs. He gives you everything you need that you can live a life for his glory. To enjoy, yes, David. Yeah, so hopefully, if you have good fathers, you think of your father as someone you can run into his arms. Um, a line I, I heard from Tim Keller um, that, I, that I like is, uh, who can interrupt the king at 3 o'clock in the morning to ask for a glass of water? The only person that can do that is one of the king's young children. Right? And the king's going to go, sure, I'll get you a glass of water. Now, if you're an older child, well, you should, you know, you're, you're dead, the king needs to sleep. But that's true with your father in heaven. He loves you and cares for you. I'm going to give you one more that no one mentioned, because uh, I think it's worth keeping in mind. Generation. That is, ordinarily, most people, they actually came into existence because of their father's activity. Right? And, and, and so that, that's a helpful one to keep in mind. Um, Scott, when did you become a dad? Two fourteen thirteen, and 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 we're going to go with this has something to do with one of your children. Yeah, it turns out that um, human fathers become fathers at precisely the same time that their first child is conceived. Right, that those things go together. You can't be a father if you have no children, and the moment you have a child, you become a father. Here's where I'm going with this. Of course, you can be adopted too, right? So that's actually how we get in God's family is to adoption. We're going to talk about that more in the coming weeks. Um, the catechism, and of course the Bible says, God is eternal father. What implications does that have for us? Not simply father, like he became your father when he adopted you, but God is eternal father. Anyone at all? Yes. Yes. Of creation and fatherhood and redemption and the whole benevolence of his people. Now, so that's a good answer to say that God is has loved us since before time began. Before time began, before God created anything, he chose you in Jesus Christ. But God being an eternal father is not that he is your father from eternity. That is not what the phrase means. Tammy. Does it mean that you follow your dad? Yeah, Tammy gives another great answer. All those qualities we talked about with God um, are qualities that God has always had from eternity. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. So that's true. But that actually doesn't quite get us to him being eternal father. That says he has the qualities we'd want in a father. Uh, hold on. Bill.
Good guess, but that actually falls in the same category of, ev of everyone else. So what I'm actually hoping, because you guys are overlooking the obvious answer. No, I'm not going to call on David. You're overlooking the obvious answer. At least I hope it's obvious to you, because I have discovered that in the broader evangelical world, sometimes people miss this. So I'm going to call on Annie, because she knows the answer. Thank you, Annie. The reason why we return to God, uh, refer to God the Father as eternal Father is he's eternally the Father of Jesus Christ. Now let me tell you where I've heard people get this wrong. They think the second person of the Trinity became the Son at his incarnation or at his resurrection. There are some passages that are used in the Old Testament talk about enthronement language where the king, the king of Israel would be called the Son of God when he is enthroned as king. And of course, naturally, those are types that point to Jesus. It's important to realize that God being eternal father, the father is the eternal father, means the son is the eternal son. He has always been the son of God. And by the way, it also means that we're not worshiping a monad. Right? It is not like God was lonely until he created us so we could have people to relate to. There are three persons in the Trinity. And the father has loved the son... The Son has loved the Father, and both of them have mutually loved the Holy Spirit since before time began. Questions on that, because I don't want anyone going home today, you may need to see me afterwards, but I want anyone going home today to think there was a point in time when Jesus became the Son of God. Jesus has always been the Son of God, the eternal Son, otherwise the Father would not always be the eternal Father. Questions? Strong rebuttals? Bill's going to give me a rebuttal. Well, I have a question about the Greek word there. Okay, Greek. My Greek is not very good. That's okay. Nathan's a Greek scholar. The word begotten. Yes. In the English language, and it's in the Greek as well, mm. implies something that happened at a point in time. So Bill says the word begotten implies that... In the English language. In the English language, implies something that happens at a point of time. I want to say that it actually doesn't. Um, it's, a good, it's a good question. This is, a, this is a hard thing for you to wrestle with. We actually understand words in a context. And the context we have is, we, we think of begotten, we think of human beings, and we naturally make that connection. The language that we would use for the begetting of the Son of God would be, he's the eternally begotten Son of God. Yeah. No, no, it really... No, it only means that because you're applying it to a creature. So the thing is, is when you, this is actually how language works. You're applying it to a creature. I'm going to give you another example in a second. You apply that to a creature, and because you apply it to the creature, when you take that word and you connect it to a creature, it means a point in time. Now we're talking not about a creature, but about the creator. And so the, languages are, the language we're going to have to do in our own heads is treated somewhat differently. Let me give you a different example of this, this, this play on words. Uh, a pretty well-known Old Testament scholar, Meredith Klein, so I'm going to disagree with him here, so if you want to agree with Meredith Klein, you're fine. Um, he was an OPC, OPC minister, PhD in Old Testament, and so on. But he used to say, and I think for good reason, it's going to be helpful for us to think of this, that grace is not merely unmerited favor. It is demerited favor. Grace is not merely unmerited favor, it's demerited favor. 
And the reason why you can say that is, is if you cut off the first three chapters of the Bible, everybody that grace is shown to, apparently, it's not quite true, but everybody that grace is shown to in the Bible is a sinner. And so it's helpful to get that idea. We don't, we don't just not merit God's grace. We were actually demeriting it. We deserve something else. Here's the problem with that. What he's done is, is he's taken our reality, which is fallen human nature. He's looked at all the examples of fallen human nature. And he said, therefore, since that's the way the word's ordinarily, ordinarily used, that must be what it means. And therefore, Meredith Klein would not use the word grace to refer to Genesis 1 and 2, where God gives people stuff they don't deserve. God graciously, I wouldn't use the word grace, graciously creates us, gives us paradise, and all those sorts of things. Now, the problem with that is you can actually go and see that the word grace is used toward Jesus Christ from the Father as well, who did not demerit grace, but it's a sign of God's favor toward Jesus Christ. To the man, to the man not just to the divine Son of God, which, of course, they always had a perfect relationship, but God's grace to the Son. So the, the problem is, is using language, this is a problem with all language about God, we're using language that we're used to using with other human beings, and by analogy, it's being applied to God. And so the word begotten when applied to God does not presuppose time. It's our creatureliness that makes us think of it in terms of time when it applies to us. You can run with that one. Bob. Well, I, I think it's an enthronement psalm. And of course it applies to Jesus. Jesus is enthroned. So it turns out that Jesus is the Son of God in more than one way. Jesus, as to his divinity, is eternally the Son of God. But, you know, we actually use the language because we can't get away from it. We'll talk about Christ before the incarnation. But we should realize when we're talking about Christ, what we're actually talking about is not just the Son of God as to his divinity, we're talking about the God-man, fully God, fully man. There is a point in time where there's an incarnation. And that incarnate Son of God, that incarnate Christ, is also enthroned just like a king. In this case, I, I'm going to say, you look at the New Testament passages, it gets connected in Paul to the resurrection. And it's appropriate to talk about Christ in that way. So as to his divinity... The second person of the Trinity has always been the Son of God. As to his humanity, there's a point in time where the Christ, the man Christ Jesus, is enthroned as the Son of God. Uh, is, yeah, enthroned as the Son of God, but yeah, that's right. So um, that may be hard to grasp, but the thing to keep in mind, of course, is, is God is both, Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And that's not something you're going to totally get your mind wrapped around. Yeah. So, I, well, I think that's the way it can, it's a tricky question, but I think it's the way if you look at Paul talking in the New Testament, um, if you look at Romans uh, 1, for example, he's declared, of course, that doesn't say he's made, he's declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And Nathan will tell you there's a couple different ways to translate that, which is true. But I, I think the idea here is, is that when Jesus is raised from the dead, and of course he ends up being enthroned in heaven, but that very activity is God's declaration that Jesus is Lord, but it's also this fulfillment of this, Jesus is my son. 
And remember in the Old Testament, maybe this will help you, and then I, want, I do want to move on. Um, in the Old Testament, if you were to ask a Jewish person in 200 B.C., who is the Son of God? John, what would they say? Israel is the Son of God. Because that's what God says to Egypt. Collectively, we the people of God are the Son of God. Israel is my son, my firstborn son. Let my people go. So the first answer to the question, who's the Son of God, is we are. But when God establishes the Davidic uh, covenant, and we have kings, the king represents all the people. And so actually, as you read the Psalms, what you'll discover is many of the Psalms actually relate to these um, Israeli kings as types of the one who is to come. So now you have two answers to that question. We are, I think that's right, that's the, that's the instinctual answer, or David is, right? Or whoever the next anointed king is. So the king in Israel was the, called the son of God. I think in that sense you can talk about the man Christ Jesus becoming the son of God, while as to his divinity, he always was. Okay, that's an awful lot, but I do want to move on to the rest of the catechism question here. Um, I, I'm happy to take your emails, private conversations on this, and so on. So the catechism talks about the fatherhood of God under three headings. Creator, provider, and governor of all things. And as I said, we're going to look at God as the provider in Lord's Day 10. So for now, I think it'll be helpful just to see how those three things fit together. These aren't three radically separate categories. I got a funny look there, so maybe I said something wrong. God is our creator, our provider, and the governor of all things. In this case, the governor of all things for our good. Um, it's helpful to see these aren't three packets. You can take one packet home. Right? God is all those things together. So our catechism says, God is the creator, or as the Catechism puts it, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them. There's a number of interesting things about that. When God created heaven and earth, everything, out of nothing, what was the instrument that he used to do that? His word. So he speaks. You get that in Genesis, you know. Let there be, and there was. Let there be, and there was. It's a beautiful structure for the passage. And of course, we're actually told in the Bible that God created everything that was by his word. For example, Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Or as Hebrews 11 puts it, by faith we understand the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And as you point out, the refrain in Genesis 1 is, let there be, and there was. Well, that's actually helpful to us because it reminds us that God's word is not only true, it's powerful. It's also helpful to us that we can connect the power of the word between the spoken word and the incarnate word. Right? You come to John 1.1, we're doing another creation story, as it were, in the beginning... But it's not in the beginning God said, rather it's in beginning was the word. That's referring to Jesus Christ. And as we're told elsewhere, all things were created through Christ. All things were created by God's word spoken. Those, those, those truths go together for us. 
I think that could be powerful as we think about God's word read and preached. Powerful as we think about the Son of God who came and died for our sins. The fact that God created all things also naturally implies his ownership and authority over all things. And that implication is going to be made explicit as you look through the rest of the catechism. Right? So it's not as though God only has authority over Christians. You know, you give God authority, as it were. As the creature, God has absolute exhaustive authority over all things. And so the catechism continues. God the Father who created all things still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence. Is my God and Father for the sake of Christ his Son. I trust God so much, but I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul. I think there are two very important ideas contained within these words. First, the God and Father of Jesus Christ has become our Father as well. So i got two questions for you. Is God the Father of everybody? And how does God become your Father? You can take either one of those. Yes? So God is the creator of everybody. He's the Lord of everybody. But he's only the father of some human beings. Yeah, Yeah. Yes. So how do you become a daughter or a son of God? Bob. Adoption. And and tell me a little bit about adoption. Does God just mail off a letter or File the forms with the state. I, 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 lost, uh, I lost Gideon and Nadia today. They can tell you some horror stories. They've been working on adoption for two years here. They have the child. They have the child. Still don't have it ofi- uh, uh, the child officially adopted. Yes? Sure. So Allison's reading from 1 John and talking about the fact we become children of God when we believe in his name. And of course, the reason why we believe in his name is he gives us new hearts. He causes us to be born again. It's that very language. We talked about generation earlier. God causes us to be born again. He gives us faith. Therefore, he adopts us into his family as his very own sons and daughters. And he does this in Jesus Christ. It's our connection with Christ that we become into his family. So... 
the eternal Son of God comes and dies for you, lives for you, dies for you, so that in him you too become a son or a daughter of God. That's incredible. In fact, John goes on to say, Oh, what manner of love that the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Yes, Jonathan. Oh, yeah, so election's eternal. So, adoption takes place in time. Justification takes place in time. By the way, that's one of the reasons why you can't relate God's eternal fatherhood to yourself. Right? The Bible talks about the fact that before we're born again, we were children of wrath just like the rest of mankind. Right? And, and God says, before I even create the world, I've got a plan. And I've set my love on Jonathan, who I'm going to create way after I create the universe. However long that is. But way after. I've set my love on him, and I've chosen him in Christ. Not, not separately. He's chosen you in connection to Christ, so that when Christ came into this world, he died specifically for your sins. Uh, this, it's, um, Doug Wilson has a, a good line, actually, about this line, limited atonement, which is what we're talking about. Jesus died for you. He says, whoever came up with the line limited atonement may have been a theological genius, but he was a marketing idiot. And, I, and uh, there's a lot of reasons not to listen to everything Doug Wilson says, so I'm not encouraging him. But that was his line. It, it, he, he's exactly right, because when you say limited atonement, it makes it sound like you're going, well, it wasn't that big a deal. Actually, the right way to think about it is efficacious atonement. When, when the Son of God came in this world, he died personally for you and for your guilt and it guaranteed he actually redeemed you he did not make your redemption possible he made your redemption actual it's efficacious and from his cross from his work from his life flows everything else all the gifts you have you receive in christ charlie yeah particular definite and so on that's exactly right limited doesn't work really well but it fits nicely in tulip what else charlie Yeah, Charlie's referring to, um, I think you're referring to John 17, which we often call the high priestly prayer of Christ. Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says, all that you have given to me, I have kept with your word. And now he's actually, so this is part of that practical thing I was mentioning earlier about uh, the Lord's table today, about how the Lord keeps his people. Jesus understands that he's about to go through the great crisis of his life on the cross, where he is going to have the wrath of holy God poured out against him for our sins. And he says, Father, you've given them to me. But would you keep them? I'm going through this great travail of my souls. Would you keep them? Also, by the way, it's very helpful to realize that you are caught up in inter-Trinitarian love here. What, what happens with the way you are is not that you are so intrinsically valuable. I mean, I love all you guys, but it's not that you're intrinsically valuable. It's your value has been imputed to you by Christ. So what happens is, is the Father says, I'm going to give you, you, to my son Jesus Christ as a love gift, as a sign of the love that I have for him. And Jesus comes and redeems us, and together with the Holy Spirit gives us back to the Father. You are a sign of the love that the Holy Spirit and Jesus have for the Father as well. So you're, you're caught up in a Trinitarian love. You're a sign of their love. 
And by the way, that can help you with assurance. Because would the Father ever reject a gift from the Son? Or a gift from the Holy Spirit? No, that's unthinkable. So it is you are secure in the love that God has, not just the love he has for you, but the love the three persons of the Trinity have for one another. That's a, a beautiful and a practically comforting truth. Now the catechism goes on here with a second question. The catechism introduces the comforting truth that God our Father provides for us as his children. We're going to look at this when we come to the next section, Lord's Day 10. But I think we should say just a bit about it here. The catechism uses very personal and pastoral language. I trust God so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul. I mean, that's good stuff. But regrettably, as sinners in a fallen world, sometimes we wrestle with that. Uh, maybe you're not wrestling with it right now. But it's not unusual for Christians, yes, genuine Christians, to sometimes struggle with security about your future. You look at your checking account, maybe security about your present. But you look at your lack of financial savings for the future, or health issues, or whatever it might be, and you can struggle with a bit of insecurity around those things. The Catechism is saying, this isn't just an abstract truth. This is for me to say, I trust God in this way. The reason why we can trust God like that, we heard this this morning in our morning sermon, is because God is such a good father. And Jesus gives us a great deal of comforting news that will come to us a little bit later in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm reading from Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 25. This is our Lord and Savior. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither toil nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? In which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow will be thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. There are many passages like that in the Bible that point us to the care that our heavenly Father has. I want to encourage you to do a practical thing. If you're struggling with this right now, or maybe you're struggling with it in six months, you feel insecure, don't just go, I know that. Check the box. Actually, go back and read the passage and meditate on it. And pray over it. Thank God that he is this sort of provider who's going to meet your needs. Now, I do want to hasten to say, as the Catechism says, sometimes you're going to do this to a veil of tears. God is not promising you as your provider that your life is going to be all smooth sailing with fat 401ks and nice homes and good health and everyone's going to love you. Actually, Jesus promises us the very opposite. That in this world, you will have tribulations. So what is God promising? 
God our Father is going to provide for you everything that you need for your chief end, which is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And what you see with the mature saints in the Bible is they actually counted a privilege that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Um, I've often, I don't know why I picked on this one. Uh, maybe I knew someone at the time that had liver cancer, but I've often thought about the fact I don't want to get liver cancer. If you know anything about it, it's, it, it's very fast, it's pretty brutal. You get it, it gets developed very far, you are going to die. I do not want to get liver cancer. Don't. But liver cancer cannot keep me from glorifying and enjoying God. In fact, it just provides a different avenue for me to do that. And I'm going to go home to be with my father faster than if I don't get it, right? So God's commitment to provide for you is not saying become a Christian and you'll be healthy and wealthy in this life so that this life will be your best life now. Although in one sense, it is your best life if you're focused on God. But your life in terms of your comforts is going to be better in the age to come, right? The suffering doesn't mean we have a bad life. I think it's amazing that our creator has in Christ become our father. John says, oh, what manner of love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. Well, we'll look at that in more detail in the coming weeks. No, I'm not going to give you a chance to talk about that. We'll talk about that next week. Let me just close with one other truth here. Um, the confession continues. I trust God so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul and will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends upon me in this veil of tears. Right? There is a veil of tears. We are sinners in a sinful world. Then at the end of the answer, he gives this beautiful summary. He is able to do this because he is almighty God. He desires to do this because he is a faithful father. It's a beautiful truth. Where does it come from, though, biblically? I don't want you to believe it because the catechism says it. Where does the Bible teach that God governs all things together for the good of his people and his own glory? Actually, it says this in a lot of places. So you've got a free range in the Bible. I'm thinking of a verse in particular from Ephesians. Romans 8. Why? He, no, no, he's rightly thinking about Romans 8 as well. So you can do, actually do both. It's all over the Bible. Yeah, that's not what we're talking about here, though. That's a good answer. And actually, it fits with this. Well, no, it, it fits with this, but what we're talking about is God not simply governing the physical civil government, but God governs every molecule in the universe exhaustively for your good. And Bob pointed to um, the end of Romans 8 where we're told that neither height nor depth nor anything else... No, it's not saying that. The end of Romans 8 is telling us that we are completely secure in God's love in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, look, you've got opposition in this world, right? But then he goes on to say, neither height nor depth nor anything in all creation can ever separate you from the love of God that God has for you in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that actually fits. I was actually thinking of a different passage, which almost says exactly what I was saying, from uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Um, Paul in um, Ephesians chapter 1 uh, actually says this, In him, that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been, 
been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. According to God's word, what things does God work according to the counsel of his will? All things. You're good Presbyterians, you all know that. But it's good to be reminded of that. I actually remember talking with a young man that was really stuck on free will about this. We'll go to this passage. And I must have gone like ten times with him. You know, what things? All things. And he would talk a bit. And i go, what things? All things. Look, if you take the Bible at face value, Paul is saying God works all things together according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. That is, this isn't just an abstract concept that God is, yeah, God's in charge. The fact that God is in charge is God is doing something in and through his people to the praise of his own glory. If you read through Colossians, you see that Christ is actually governing all things right now for the good of his church. That's for you. Last question or comment. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so Allison points out that later in Ephesians in chapter 5, we talk about we give thanks to God the Father for everything. Well, we can only do that because God is governing everything for the good of his people and for his own glory. We do need to stop there so that we don't have wandering children coming out of Sunday school wondering where their parents are. Um, Ray, would you close in prayer?